0: If you would turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 14, found on page 1039. Luke 14, we're going to start at verse uh, 25. Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Now the crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, "This man began to build and was not able to finish, or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, whether the other is and, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. an elderly man in his church that he knew was on on fire for the Lord. And when he got to the man's house, which was uh, quite a ways off the road in the trees, he saw him sitting on his front porch with his uh, hound dog laying right at his feet. When he got there, the young man asked uh, him a question. He says, George, I've known you all my life. He says, how come you're so on fire for the Lord? He said, most people that I see in our church, they're just not excited about their faith. He says, but for you, it's different. I I, I see excitement. I see joy. I see passion coming from from your life. He goes, how come you're so different? And George smiled at the young man and said, well, let me tell you a story. See my dog? He goes, one day, a big rabbit, it, it ran across the yard, and my dog took off after it. And it was chasing it and chasing it. And he started to, uh, well, you know what hounds do. They, they, they've got that deep bay or whatever. What, what do you call that? Bale. Okay. Yeah, okay. And uh, he says, the, the neighborhood dogs, they, they also heard it. And so they came running. And so they were following my dog, chasing the rabbit through the trees, through all the underbrush. And he goes, but something curious happened after a while. All the other dogs, they, they stopped following that. They stopped chasing, and, and it was eventually just my dog chasing the rabbit. And he goes, that's your answer right there. And, and uh, the, the, the young man says, but what kind of answer is that? That, that, doesn't, explain, that doesn't explain anything. And... Uh, The old man, he says to uh, the young man in, in, in reply, he goes, well, well, think about it. He goes, why, why did the other dogs quit the chase? And uh, the young man says, well, they were probably tired. And he goes, yeah, George says they, they could have been tired, but it, it's even more significant than that. He says, anything come to mind? And the young man, he couldn't answer it. And so he says, well, think about it. He says, my dog could see the rabbit. The other dogs could only see my dog. And so what were they chasing? They weren't chasing the rabbit. They were chasing my dog. And and so after they started to get tired and a little weary, they eventually quit. But my dog kept chasing that rabbit because he could see it, because he was the one that was right behind it. And he says, apply that to your Christian life. He goes, those who have their eyes fixed on Jesus... They're going to be able to run and they're going to keep going because their eyes are on Jesus. But he says, sometimes it's easy to, instead of chasing Jesus, we we chase a church or we chase a, a pastor or we chase other Christians or we, all kinds of reasons. He says, and while those things may not be necessarily bad, it's not the most important thing. If you're going to continue to run your race, if you're going to count your cost, You've got to be able to see Jesus. Your eyes have to be on him. By the time of the events of our passage, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. Crowds have been following Jesus, but they've been following him for the wrong reasons. They weren't following him because he was the Savior, because Jesus could take away their sins They were following him because he was the bread man. He could give them free bread. Jesus could heal people. And also, they were counting on Jesus setting them free from the Romans. What people failed to understand was if they wanted to be his disciple and follow him, then they need to be totally committed, they need to be willing to count the cost. And so Jesus speaks to the crowd and talks to them about about what it really means to follow him. And the first thing that, that he tells the people, he says, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to center your life on me. If you want to be my disciple, then you have to center your life on me. One pastor who preached on this text, he entitled his sermon with kind of a, tongue-in-cheek title, he says, How to Hate Your Wife. I'm sure a lot of people were were wondering what in the world that was going to be about. Given everything Jesus had previously taught about sacrificial love, this is kind of a surprise, hearing Jesus say these words. And you have to ask yourself, how, how can he say that? How can he say that to follow him You've got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your very life. So that you can follow Jesus. Well, To understand this, you need to keep in mind what, how Jesus often used figurative language when trying to express ideas. He used metaphors and similes and parables, and, and here he's using a hyperbole which is, uh, I think you could say, an intentional exaggeration of the truth to make a point. It was like when my boys were, were younger, my wife would say to them, for the millionth time, would you stop drinking out of the milk carton? Now, did she really for a million times actually say that to them? I don't think so. Maybe she did. She, you did? <laughs> Might have not been a million, but it was a lot, (laughs) okay? And what was she doing? She was exaggerating to make a point, right? Not that it ever sunk into their heads, but still, it's the idea. The word Jesus uses in verse 26 that is translated as hate in our Bibles. It carries the meaning of, of to love less. To love less. So in other words, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must be willing to love everyone and everything less than you love Jesus. That he's got to be your first love. He's got to be the desire of your heart. This means he's got to come even before your children. He's got to come before your spouse. He's got to come before your friends. He needs to be first in your life. And you could almost, I guess if you exaggerated that, say you got to hate them enough to love Jesus more. That's really not what Jesus is saying. He wants you to love them too, but love Jesus the most. And he's got to be first. The second thing you're called to do if you want to be a disciple of Jesus is a willingness to offer him your life. A willingness to offer him your life. Look at again at verse 26. If you love your life more than me, then you cannot be my disciple. In other words, you need to, to love Christ so much and be so committed to him that you're willing to lay down your life for him. In some countries, that, that's a given. If you're a Christian, often that means your life. In China, they've persecuted Christians over the years and and tortured and, and killed them, and, and even now in, in this modern day, um, if you profess Christianity, they will send you to these uh, camps where they try to brainwash you into putting the state first, into believing in communism. Sudan, to become a Christian means you can have your children taken away, so that they can be raised as good Muslims. Iran, Christians are often beheaded. Whole families are, are killed. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, am I, being, am I willing to be Christ's disciple, even if it means suffering? Am I willing to count the cost? Notice I didn't say everyone has to suffer like this, and, and it, it'll, it'll mean your life. But what it does mean is you have to be willing to offer Jesus your life. Everything about you, that's part of our loving him first. That's part of our loving him more. That's why Jesus says in verse 27 that we need to be willing to pick up the cross and follow him. You know, today the image of the cross, it's lost a lot of its meaning. A lot of us have crosses that, that we wear. I'm sure many of you do as well. And for many, though, the, 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 their cross is just a piece of jewelry. For many, they, they've forgotten what that, what that cross means, what it, it symbolizes. Back in, in, in Jesus' day, that was the worst way a person could die. People would never put a cross around their neck. Because the, the, the cross symbolized torture. It symbolized being the worst criminal and the worst way to die. The cross was a whore for those who saw it. And Really, this is the true message of the cross. Jesus' day it was a symbol that represented a horrible and agonizing way to die. And, and, and for us today, to follow Jesus and pick up our cross, it also symbolizes a willingness to suffer in order to follow Jesus. You know, in, in some prisons that, where, where inmates are, are put to death, oftentimes when, when an inmate is, is being led from their cell to uh, where, where they're going to be executed, other prisoners will say something like, dead man walking. I think there was even a movie about that some 15, 20 years ago already. And what that means is, yeah, they're alive and they're walking, but they're as good as dead because of what's about to happen to them. And that's really what we're being called to do is to live the kind of life that we're so willing to give of ourselves and and follow Jesus. That you could call us dead man walking or dead woman walking because we've put Christ first. And the Bible says that when you're willing to do that, that's when you suddenly find the meaning of life. That's when life becomes something that that we can enjoy. We're filled with a, a, a joy, a peace that can only come from God, something that is impossible without Christ in our lives. Paul often talked about the importance of picking up your cross and following Jesus. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so as Paul thought about the love that he had been shown in Jesus, how his sins had been taken away, for Paul, the most important thing was his relationship with Jesus, having fellowship with Christ. Everything else paled in comparison. He believed he owed Jesus everything. He owed Jesus his life. And I hope each of you can say that as well. I owe Christ everything. He died on the cross. He saved me. I owe him everything. And so now, hopefully, we will be conduits of his love and conduits of his power through the working of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's not easy walking on that, on that path that follows Jesus. It's not easy picking up your cross. But when we surrender our lives to him, it's amazing how suddenly our lives make sense and we find fulfillment. One of the classic books on discipleship is called The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. He was a, a German pastor during World War II who uh, ended up in being put to death by the Nazis right before uh, the end of the war. And, and listen to what he wrote about the cross. He says, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus, Jesus Christ living and in incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must know. It is, a cost, it is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. The second parable of our text Jesus describes two kings, and one was outnumbered. And so he wisely approaches the, the stronger king, and after realizing his numbers, of his army compared to what he was facing, a king's willing to make peace, to surrender to the other king. And and that's exactly what's happened to us. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we must surrender our lives to him. In Jesus' day, uh, uh, a king that surrenders must be humble. A king who surrenders... knew they could be made into a slave and yet they were willing to take that chance in order to have peace because they knew that there was no way to survive otherwise. And Again, that's true for us. That's why we've got to be willing to count the cost and surrender our lives to him. Third thing, if we want to be a disciple of Jesus is what I've been alluding to this entire time how important it is to actually count the cost. Jesus tells a parable to, um, to really illustrate this, and he says, you know, a man who wanted to build a, a, a tower, it would be foolish of him to, to start building if he didn't have enough money. It's better for him to first sit down with a pen and paper and, and, and figure out how much it's going to cost, and then he can build it. Otherwise, he'll be half done and neighbors will look at him and they'll just laugh. I can remember when we were living in uh, Tohachie, New Mexico. The church, uh, uh, another Christian Reformed church that was just north of us, about 20 minutes, was a, a little community called Nas Chitti. And uh, at one time, the, the congregation there decided they were going to build a church, a, a new building, and, and they had a very small church. And uh, they built the walls but they never completed it. And I know when I saw it for the first time, it already had trees growing in the, in the middle of where pews should be. They didn't count the cost. And it sat that way for some 20 years, and I heard a couple, I think last year, it, it actually burned down. Every time I went by there or I had a meeting at that, that little church, I remember thinking, this is kind of sad that they weren't able to complete this. It could have been wonderful, but they didn't count the cost. I think this can describe a lot of Christians to some degree. You know, over the years, I've had the privilege of welcoming a number of people into the church and all the different congregations I've been at. And I I, I love when I, I get to hear people make profession of faith. It's one of the highlights of my job even working with them and, and preparing them for that. And, you know, But I've noticed something, too, for, for some of them, not a lot, but for some, I don't know what happens, but after they make profession of faith, it, it seems like their, their hunger for the Lord starts to, to dim. It doesn't seem to be as strong as it was. After a while, they stop going to church like they were, and it seems like they, they, they feel like they, they accomplished what they were supposed to, and now they could take it easy. And so then they would start to come to church less and less, and sometimes they would even lose interest completely. I think individuals like that, they forget who they're running after. Like those other dogs in that illustration that I shared at the very beginning. Their eyes, instead of being on Jesus... They are on other things, on other Christians, and, and because of that, they, they just lose their passion, they lose their desire. For them, Christianity becomes more about keeping up appearances. It's about following rules. And when that begins to happen, that's when you start to lose interest. He's no longer the desire of our hearts. I heard a story about Alexander the Great that that kind of surprised me. Apparently he uh, came up to this uh, walled city that was right on, the back of the city was right on this uh, cliff face. And apparently he uh, went up to uh, the, the city walls with his soldiers and he told them to surrender. Well, they were unwilling to do that. Well, they called their king and so the king came and he stood there with the soldiers, and, and again, Alexander the Great told them, I want you to surrender, or I'm going to kill everybody. And your city will be destroyed. And, and, and the king kind of laughed at him and says, you're never going to be able to get in here. These wall, This city, these walls, are, they're impenetrable. And so Alexander the Great then put on a little demonstration for the king and his soldiers. He ordered his men to line up and, and in a single line, and so he told them to to start walking. And one by one, men started to just walk right off the edge of the cliff to their death. Apparently ten men did this before Alexander the Great told them to stop and come back to him. And when the king and all those soldiers on the wall saw these men's willingness to obey at any cost Alexander the Great, They immediately surrendered. They surrendered because they knew they knew what these soldiers what they would do. If if what they saw is any indication of of how they would follow Alexander the Great, they knew that they had they had no hope. There's no way that they were gonna be able to uh, to fight against them. What about you? When it comes to your relationship with uh, the Lord. Are you walking? Are you running? Are you standing? Are you sitting this morning? The good news is the finish line is still before us. Which means we can still finish well. Even if you haven't been running your race very well. You can still finish well. But it's time to follow Jesus. It's time to put our eyes on him. Not the church, not other Christians, though they can be very encouraging to us in our faith, but our eyes have to be on Jesus. That means we have to be in the Word, we have to be in prayer. We need to be here in this building, fellowshipping with other believers. We we need that encouragement. All those things help us keep our eyes on Jesus. That's the most important thing. So one last thing our text calls us to do. And that's to, it calls us to follow the footsteps of Jesus and be willing to be the salt of the earth. We've talked before about how important salt was back in, in Jesus' day. That they often gave soldiers a, a, a wage in salt, because that's how, how valuable it was. But salt preserved meat, and it, it kept it from spoiling. It kept people from getting sick. It, it, it also brought out the flavor of food. I believe we live in a nation that's suffering from moral decay. Our society, it's I think you're very aware of it. It's getting more and more rotten all the time. And so like salt, we need to come in contact with our, our culture and slow down the process of decay. We don't do this in our own strength. Again, we do it in Christ, and we're being used by Christ. But we got to be willing to count the cost, to follow Jesus wherever he goes. We need to be his hands and feet. We need to offer mercy. We need to offer justice. We need to help the poor, the sick. Being salt will definitely not make us popular. You ever noticed how when salt gets into a wound, it stings? Yeah. That's how it can be with us and the world around us. Sometimes just our very presence causes those who don't know Christ to to cringe and to pull back. But just because that happens, we we need to keep at it. We need to love them enough to be that salt. Because we know that that will bring healing. Because we know that's what the world needs. This means for salt to maintain its value, it's got to stay pure. Because when when salt is diluted and contaminated by the things around it, it's worthless. Jesus says in in Matthew 5.13 that that kind of salt, the only good use for it is to be thrown out to be dumped. It's not even worth putting on the manure pile. What do you have in your life right now that is contaminating you? What is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind right now? Something in your life that needs to go. I encourage you to do it. Be willing to follow Jesus no matter what. Be willing to count the cost and lay those things at the cross of Jesus. And to accept the forgiveness that he offers us, so that we can walk in the freedom that Christ has for us. Christ wants to do great things through you, through each of you. Christ wants to do great things. Through you, he wants to channel his power, he wants to channel his love. Are you willing to count the cost? Jesus says at the end of our passage, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or another way to put it is, let him obey. I think that pretty well sums it up. And so, what are you going to do? Will you follow Jesus? Are you ready to count the cost? All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. I surrender all. May that be the prayer of each of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. And to that love, Lord, we offer you our lives. We surrender all. And we just pray, Lord, that you might use us that we might be your hands and feet, that we might be your voice. We pray that others will know we are Christians by our love. Lord, forgive us when we're so filled with ourselves that we forget what you've called each of us to do. Lord, through the strength of your Holy Spirit, help us to put you first. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Let's sing that very song.